When a summer storm brews, this sound reminds us of nature's power. Humans have long been fascinated by the phenomena caused by electricity. You might recall Benjamin Franklin's dramatic efforts to bring down lightning with a kite. But one area of current research into electricity might shock you. The use of bioelectric medicine to diagnose and treat disease. After all, our bodies communicate internally with electrical signaling, so why not use electricity to fix things when they go wrong? Could this be a new kind of therapy? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, we shine a light on using electricity to treat wounds or even cure chronic disease. The field is generating buzz, but what does the evidence say about electricity's healing ability? Can a zap of it really help you lose weight? Could a jolt cure cancer? Hop into your Faraday cage. This episode of our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, The Body Electric. The influence electricity has on our lives is immense. However, we might forget about its role in the functioning of our bodies. For example, our heart beats to a steady series of electrical pulses, and tiny jolts of electricity fire our brain's billions of neurons. This has implications for many, many diseases, ranging from autoimmune diseases to cancer to stroke and heart attack. And so this has generated a tremendous amount of interest. We'll hear about research into how electricity might help our bodies when things go wrong how individual cells are like capacitors, and even about the body's electrical superhighway, the vagus nerve. But to evaluate the health claims, we first need to jolt our memories. After all, the history of electricity is littered with extraordinary claims of its curative benefits, many of them fueled by our initial infatuation with electricity's exotic properties. When it was first proposed that our bodies use electrical signaling for internal communication, well, that was a bolt from the blue. It actually sparked off a war that uh, divided all of Europe's scientists and forced them to choose sides. (laughs) This was a, a fairly controversial contention at the time. We weren't totally in the dark about electricity back then. In 1752, Benjamin Franklin had flown a kite into a thunderstorm and collected electrical charge from the sky. Now, as we've mentioned on this show, Ben didn't discover electricity, as many scientists knew about it already, but he was among the first to prove that electricity was indeed present in those stormy clouds above. However, the scientific storm clouds were only beginning to gather. So it starts in about 1791, when science is basically still getting to grips with the whole idea of the phenomenon of electricity. In the 18th century, before electric lamps turned night into day and the hum of motors defined the modern age, electricity was still new and thrilling. A simple device, the Leyden jar, inspired awe as a storage bottle for electric fire and demonstrations of electrical shocks to the body were a source of public entertainment. Into this electricity craze wades the anatomist Luigi Galvani with a radical idea. Could what stimulates our bodies to move and think be electrical in nature? Initially, everyone thinks this is the cat's pajamas, this giant, you know, tome that he publishes. 
um, in which he identifies nervous electricity for the first time. And the guy who would go on to invent the battery or the proto-battery, Alessandro Volta, is having none of it. And he decides that Galvani is wrong and they get into this Twitter spat, except with really long papers that are published <laughs> back and forth. You know, on the other hand, we've known that biology and electricity, you know, they had some connection, obviously. Anybody who's watched a frog's leg twitch in a laboratory knows that there's, there's obviously something connecting um, motion, if nothing else, with electricity. So why was this such a difficult uh, concept that our bodies also incorporated electrical currents? Well, obvious to you, but uh, people really hated this idea. Um, Volta thought the only reason that the frog's legs that, you know, Galvani famously made twitch after death, he thought the only reason that was happening is because of whatever metal contacts he was putting into them, uh, that there was some something about the metals. He point blank refused to believe that there was anything bioelectric. And then this huge cadre of scientists afterwards sort of marched in and tried to prove either way whether bioelectricity was real or not real. In her book, We Are Electric, Inside the 200-Year Hunt for Our Bodies' Bioelectric Code and What the Future Holds, journalist Sally Aidy says that many could not accept that the phenomenon that they saw in lightning is also what made the body tick. Experiments continued, and some were far out there. Alexander von Humboldt threaded a silver wire into his own rectum to try to figure out what sorts of effects electricity could have on the body and whether this could mean that we have some kind of bioelectric endogenous electricity. Talk about dedication to science. Picture or don't what we're talking about here. Humboldt put an electrode in his backside and one in his mouth and then ran a current through them. Okay, <laughs> what happened next? Well, he had cramps, severe stomach pain, and according to his own account, an involuntary release of the bladder. But for some reason, he was unperturbed and inserted the electrode more deeply until a bright light appeared before his eyes. Seth, I wouldn't have the nerve to experiment on myself like that. I might not have any nerves left if I did an experiment like that. Right. Well, self-experimentation was a hallmark of 18th century science. The results, like Alexander Humboldt's, do not encourage the idea that it would be a good thing to apply electricity to the inside of our bodies. So how did we come to think that electricity had curative power? Well, to begin with, the Europeans were not the first to plug into the healing potential of electricity. The ancient Egyptians used zaps from electric catfish from the Nile to treat arthritis. I wonder if it helped. Alexander Humboldt's shocking insights aside, the belief that electricity could have health benefits continued into the next century when they really took off. Some doctors gave electrical shocks to the body to treat all manner of mental and physical disorders, from anxiety to toothaches to muscle atrophy. The applications were thought to be endless. In the 19th century, they had some wild stuff. They had, uh, you know, things that to cure distinctly Victorian maladies, like excessive male vigor or not enough male vigor. There were some belts you could put elsewhere, let's say, <laughs> for a family audience. Things were quite a wild west back then. Ultimately, many applications were deemed quackery, but the fundamental principles of bioelectricity and electrotherapy survived the more bizarre 19th century ideas and eventually found practical uses in things like electrocardiograms and the cauterization of wounds. We eventually confirmed that the body's communication is indeed via electrical signaling 
and that property is shared by all living things. Nerves didn't invent electrical signaling. Like, this method of intracellular communication is millions of years old. Every living system shares this. You know, bacteria make use of voltage to communicate. Plants do. Fungi do. You know, things we don't even know how to classify. They all use this. And they use it because it's the underlying chassis by which the body understands itself. Like, that's all electric. And so going deeper than the nervous system is absolutely necessary to understanding how life works. Today, we know more about how cells generate electricity. That is, they move around positively and negatively charged molecules, called ions, of potassium, sodium, calcium, and magnesium. So in the nervous system, the cell, it's studded with tens of thousands of little channels called ion channels. And these let the ions that are floating around in your you know, extracellular soup, they let them in and out. But they have a preference. They really like potassium and they really don't like sodium. And so these smart pores keep them separated. And this separation makes the inside of the cell about minus 70 millivolts with respect to the outside. And that means that the cell is a little capacitor. So what she's saying is that the cell stores a charge. In other words, one part of the cell is more positively charged and another part of the cell is more negatively charged. This voltage, the action potential as it's called, allows a cell to activate a neighboring cell. That's the mechanism by which action potentials travel down your nerves. And I cannot overstate how much this underpins every facet of your experience as like a living creature. You know, the fact that you can feel and think and see and hear and act and breathe and pick up a glass of water and do a podcast. Like there's none of that without those ion channels and those ions. Presumably these are the same mechanisms that are involved in the beating of our hearts, right? I mean, that's all that's electrical. Right. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's a special case because in the heart they're connected. So I didn't mention that, you know, the nerve impulse isn't purely electric, it's electrochemical because the action potential, the electrical thing, sets off the sort of serotonin and all those little chemical bits that also pass on the signal. But the, the heart has a special pacemaker that isn't regulated by the brain. As you know, you can't control your heartbeat. Like you can control it to some extent by slowing it down or, you know, you, if you're nervous, it speeds up, but you can't make it stop. You can't make your own heart stop. So it's not under your voluntary control. And all the cells in your heart beat in perfect synchrony thanks to these special ion channels called gap junctions, which are electrical synapses that don't have chemistry in them. It's just electricity. And they, that's what keeps your heart beating for your whole life. You might still be recovering from the shock that you are essentially an electrical bag of protoplasm, but this all has implications for our health. Scientists think that illness, even cancer, can result when bioelectrical signaling goes awry. Sally A.D. outlines several areas of new research into how we might benefit by controlling or correcting our electrical signaling. For example, let's say you cut your hand. Applying an electrical current to your wound might speed up healing. I'm super excited about this. I will try not to waffle on too much. This really tripped up the people who were trying to characterize the nervous impulse back in the 19th century. Because every time they would cut a frog to try to measure its you know, nerve signal, they would get this current that was interfering. And they were just like, oh, don't know what this is, going to ignore it. It's only like 150 years later, we start to understand what the deal is. So the deal is this. 
Your skin cells also have that voltage that the nerve cells have, but what they use it for is they are tightly linked against the outside world. And when you cut that barrier, the ions that normally are uh, very properly going through, you know, the ion channels and gap junctions and stuff, those just gush out all over the place. It's like getting a short circuit and they're going everywhere. And as a consequence, you get this thing called a wound current and the wound current generates an electric field. The electric field is a beacon, like a bat signal type of thing that basically calls in the fixer and helper cells that are going to patch up your wound. When your wound is fresh, that electric field is the strongest and it wanes as the wound heals and it's gone by the time it's all healed over. What's super interesting about some of the new tools that we've developed over the past 10 or 20 years is that they've started to help us characterize this. And what they found is that in people over the age of 65, the wound current is only half as strong as it is in people under the age of 25, which is a super interesting correlation, I think, with the fact that we do start to heal more slowly as we age. And so they were trying to figure out, like, you know, what can we do with this? So they first they tried to figure out, like, if we mess up the ion channels that are responsible for the current and the, you know, everything during this wound healing process. Do we undermine the wound healing process? And the answer is yes. And then they were like, well, how can we speed it up? Can we do the opposite? And so they started applying electrical stimulation and they did find that that speeds up the rate of healing. And now DARPA, the, you know, R&D arm of the U.S. military, has a project that is trying to figure out whether messing with the electrics can speed up the rate of healing for battlefield injuries. Particularly in the 19th century, Sally, when electricity, particularly electricity in our bodies, was sort of a new thing. It was the shiny rock and so forth. You know, there was a lot of hokum around the whole subject. Uh, There's still hokum today. How, how, How do you separate it out? What would be your advice to people who read an advertisement for some sort of device or treatment or something that could solve a problem that they may have by capitalizing on the fact that we are electric? That's a great question. Um, The motif that uh, unifies a lot of the bad science that I was talking about, the sort of electric quackery, is that the people who ended up doing pseudoscience, either inadvertently or very much on purpose, they were getting ahead of what the science showed, right? Back when we had these crazy electric treatments, you know, we didn't even have the tools to prove what they were actually supposed to be doing in the body. So it was just a sort of free for all, you know, electricity, it's the hot new thing, zap yourself and be cured of hysteria. And what you really want to do is make sure that you see whether the thing that's being talked about has clinical trials behind it. And obviously this, a lot of the science is early days, but For example, with deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, there are massive trials that show you that this works in a very large number of people to alleviate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. There are trials that show that to a slightly less replicated extent, it may work in people with depression or epilepsy. And you can see, as soon as you do a little bit of research into what sorts of clinical trials have been done and how many people it's been done in, that weeds out the BS so quickly.
Journalist Sally Aidy shares more research from the field of bioelectricity coming up. Though we're keeping on our skeptic caps as we further examine electricity's applications to help the brain and whether it can flip malignant cells back to healthy ones in cancer treatment. This episode of our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, The Body Electric. still learning how our cells communicate via electrical currents, but the brain's use of electrochemical signals has been very well established. With that in mind, our gray matter would seem not only to be an obvious focus for bioelectric therapy, but the part of our body most likely to respond positively to it. Journalist Sally Aidy explained that the evidence is strong that deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's patients, for example, relieves symptoms. However, she also cautions about having inflated expectations that a zap of electricity can cure all that ails our brains. Listen, what I would want, I, I, I have a very poor memory. And, you know, what I would like is for somebody to take some of the chips that they manufacture here in the Silicon Valley and, you know, put one of those in my skull and increase my memory by a factor of 100 or 1,000. Uh, I, I think we're nowhere near that. Interestingly, there is work that claims that you can actually implant memories into people with the right sort of electrical hardware implanted into them by enacting, instead of reading the brain's electrical activity, writing it. But personally, I am super bearish on that. I think I'm using the right term. But I just, I think one of the problems is that in order to make good brain implants for any of this application, you need to overcome the language barrier between electronics and the fact that the brain and body speak ion. Now, they're working on stuff like that. There's a guy called Chris Bettinger. He is at Carnegie Mellon, and he is one of the people who's working on materials that are able to speak ion, just like our bodies. And what's really interesting is that some of these people are looking at biological materials and trying to turn them into the next generation of electronics, just because like the body and metals and silicon, they just don't end up playing together that well for a super long time. If you've got them in your brain, you don't want to just get brain surgery every 10 years to remove the metal brain implant that has caused an immune re reaction in your brain. Yeah. Yes. I mean, even a simple task, like somehow putting one of those, you know, suction cup caps on my head and having that feed a machine and have it transcribe my thoughts, for example, right? I, I just think something and you know, the machine knows what I'm thinking. I mean, you see that in science fiction. I haven't seen it too often uh, in, in the real world, but in principle, I would think that that would be possible because after all, if your thoughts are just electrical currents, we can measure those and uh, of you have to interpret what the, what the thoughts are. But I mean, could we eventually have this sort of, I, I don't know if you'd call it telepathy, it might not work across the room, but it might work across your hairline. Well, um, so there's absolutely wild work being done with penetrating, like really invasive implants. Along with machine learning based signal processing algorithms, they've been able to pick up what someone is thinking at a rate of something like 60 words per minute. I can't remember. I think it's that. It is incredible. So for people with like locked in syndrome, people who can't speak because of ALS, 
this is like borderline miraculous, right? You can actually listen to them speaking to you at a rate that's faster than like I can type. But trying to translate that into the suction cups on your head is a non-starter because the skull just messes up those electrical signals so hard. You have to go into the language part of the brain, get like real pin cushiony stuff in there. And when you have the stuff on your head, the stuff that's the best metaphor I think I heard was a guy saying, if you're at a football stadium and it's one of those closed ones, you know, that has a cover and you dangle in a mic and you try to figure out what any one person is saying, that's what you're doing with um, surface electrodes without going deeply into the brain. So you can figure out sort of rough brain states, like what stage of sleep are you at? But in terms of like actual thoughts, forget it. You're not going to do it. Also, it's super gooey. <laughs> you have to have this conductive gel to amplify the um, signal. And it's pretty gross to actually have those caps on. It really messes up your hairdo. <laughs> it does, actually. It, it, this sounds to me like a fundamental problem. And I, I guess this would be my last question to you, Sally. And that is... You know, because we don't seem to, even if we can measure these currents in our skulls, we don't really understand the language that they're speaking. I mean, it can be very complex, as you say, like dangling that microphone uh, and trying to pick out one person's conversation. But does that mean that these sort of sci-fi scenarios where we eventually, we can increase somebody's IQ or their memory or some other cognitive aspect of their lives by simply putting chips somehow interfacing chips to their brains, that that's just not ever going to happen? I think that's garbage, the way that it's being sort of um, mooted now. I don't think that is the way it's going to go. So first of all, the brain, you know, if you sort of scratch a neuroscientist hard enough, they'll tell you that we do not understand the brain. It's got 86 billion neurons. That is a lot of zeros, right? And so what we do when we put these Utah arrays, these little pin cushions for ladybirds in the brain, these things have 100 electrodes. So they can listen to, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred neurons at the same time out of 86 billion. So we're able to, like, luckily the cortex is where you get like language and sort of motor control and sensation. But I mean, when you're talking about the deeper stuff like memories or, you know, motivation, dopamine, you know, you get, you know, you do have deep brain stimulation, which is able to help with Parkinson's. But we get really misled by the metaphors that we use to describe it. So in the 19th century, it was the telegraph, like the, the nervous system is a telegraph, you know, passing signals. And then they were like, oh, what about the guys in the brain that are doing stuff? Okay, it became a telephone switchboard because you had like little operators doing the switches. And then in the 1940s and 50s, we were like, ooh, a computer, we've invented a computer. That must be what the brain is. Matthew Cobb is a great writer and scientist who's detailed this in his book. It's called The Idea of the Brain. Anyway, but the thing is, we get really bamboozled and fall in love with whatever the latest object is that we invented. And our latest thing that we invented is the computer. And so we're like, the brain is comprised of circuits. And so then we sort of over-index on these metaphors. And right now, we're actually really bumping against the limits of what the computer metaphor can help us understand about the brain, because it is so far beyond that understanding. So, sorry, just to finish that is, I think bioelectricity research should start refocusing on things like wound healing, 
you know, cancer regeneration. You know, there are people who are trying to figure out the difference electrically between us and creatures that are able to regenerate limbs. All of that is going to be less complicated than trying to figure out the whole brain. <laughs> Sally Aidy, thank you so very much for speaking with us, even if you had to use, you know, vibrating vocal cords to do it. <laughs> thank you very much. Sally Aidy is a journalist, and she is the author of We Are Electric, Inside the 200-Year Hunt for Our Body's Bioelectric Code and What the Future Holds. She suggests that cancer research is an area where the application of bioelectric therapy shows promise. But that application, too, is one that comes with caveats. My name is Samantha Payne. I am an assistant professor of biomedical sciences at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Well, Samantha, you were trying to control cancer, uh, limit cancer, in this case, breast cancer. And we're going to get to your study. But the way you're doing it, if I understand this correctly, is by controlling the potassium channels of cells. Because in um, one of your paper summaries, you say that changes in the resting membrane potential are associated with cancer cell invasion. So we, we want to look at what the resting membrane potential of a cell is. Yeah, kind of like it's when it's in homeostatic conditions hanging out, that's what you would call the resting membrane potential when you're not changing it with some sort of stimulus. Okay, so like if we're just sitting on the couch, we're not moving, we're just watching TV, nothing else is happening, that would be a kind of homeostasis. Um, probably not the best analogy here. I'm trying to be too relatable here, but let, let's go with it this. Works. It works, it works. <laughs> not sure about that, but okay. And so what is the relationship between the electrical charge of a cell and the growth of cancer? Yeah, so some of the work that I did and that others have done um, in different cancers, so, you know, I'm in breast cancer, but there's... There's been other, prostate is one, um, some brain cancers, similar things have been shown. You know, you have these breast cells and they can become cancerous. So the membrane potential changes. And essentially, usually what we've seen is that they're more negative inside. So they become depolarized. That's what it's called. So it has more negative ions or less positive ions, some sort of balance that causes it to be more negative. So basically, when we see this change, it seems to lead to these kind of downstream effects, we say, in the cell that are chemical or biological. So when they're more negative, it causes proteins to behave differently inside of a cell. And some of those changes means the cancer cells, they're able to replicate faster, so they make more of themselves faster. Um, they can also move faster, like literally migrate through the body at a faster speed. Okay, so when the cell's electrical balance is off, you said there are these downstream yep. effects, and you mean yep. within the cell. So then the cell yes. starts not functioning in optimum way, in a number of ways. You have demonstrated some encouraging results in your ability to control or limit breast cancer growth recently in a study. Can you summarize your results? Yeah, so we, it's interesting, we went into the study, like I've been talking about that the idea is that breast cancer cells are more negative, more depolarized inside. And so that's what makes them more cancerous. And we were specifically looking at a subset of cancer cells, and those are the ones that can metastasize. So the ones that go to other parts of the body and go to these other locations. And it turns out that those cells seem to use some of these bioelectric signaling changes in order to do that or to be better at this migration. So our hypothesis when we started the study was, 
If breast cancer cells are more negative, if we make them more positive inside, so if we force them to become more positive, will it decrease all these other things that make them cancer cells, essentially? So is it a way of almost like reversing that cancer cell uh, phenotype or characteristics? So we made the cells more positive and we observed a few things like how well can they reproduce, so proliferation, how well can they move around in a dish, so migration, and so they actually got worse. So we made the cells more positive and it actually made them into super cancer cells. They moved around like crazy, they proliferated like crazy. So it did the opposite of what we were expecting. So is it about balance? You can't swing the charge too much the other way. That's sort of what we concluded partly was that it's not so much whether or not they become more negative or more positive. It's just the fact that it's changing, like that, that you're disturbing that uh, resting potential that a normal cell would have. I was like, great, what am I going to do with this data, basically, <laughs> because it's the opposite of what we were expecting. Um, but we then went on to show the second half of that study is that you know, we grew up these tumors inside mice, and then we treated the mice with um, a drug that actually blocks potassium channels. And when we did that, we found that actually we got a reduction in the number of cancer cells that went to the lungs of the mice. So it reduced that ability of the cells to migrate. Okay, so the first part, you realize that if you had too much electrical charge, it swings the other way, and the cell does not like to be bumped out of its resting state. But the second part of the study underscored the role of these potassium channels and that if you can target and control those potassium ion channels, you may be able to control the cancer. But in that case, mm -hmm. it was a drug. It wasn't electricity you were using. It wasn't an electrode that you were putting on the tissue. Yeah, that's a very good point and something to distinguish. Is, and what also makes this so complicated, this study, is there's that physical charge, like ion charge, but there's also the actual ion channels, which are, you know, proteins. And that's what the drug targeted. It actually plugs them, essentially. Well, Samantha, then do you see potential for bioelectrical therapy somewhere down the line where you could actually apply electricity and actually stop the cancer growth? I think so. I think realistically, it would be combined with existing cancer drugs. I can't see it ever on its own becoming a strategy. So if you kind of combine it as a complementary strategy, I think that's probably where the value lies in this work, is using it as, as a way to target those cancer cells that are not touched by the regular drugs. But does that reflect the state of the research now? I mean, is it just that we haven't practice this enough, we don't know how to refine the application of electricity enough to be able to control cancer, or that's just not what the future holds for this kind of therapy? I think it's hard to say. So you may be, if you were talking to people looking at wound healing and things like that, you know, that's, it's a little bit different. They talk about electric fields, which is across a whole tissue. I'm talking about within, you know, one cell kind of, but so my point is partly it's, like a practicality kind of thing. So electric signaling and kind of applying an electric field or a charge like, you know, directly to a part of the body is great if you have like skin or something like that. But how are you going to reach a tumor, you know, inside the body? It's pretty invasive, right? Like you'd have to stick a probe in. I mean, breast cancer, sure, that might work, but something like a glioblastoma cancer that's in your brain, you know, some sort of electric, whatever you want to call it, it's just not feasible. But it, I mean, it could be, but I think we're really far away from that type of thing where we can 
you know, stick something in the body and apply electric field and zap the cells and have them change. Like, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think it's going to be these more kind of subtle drugs that can manipulate the ion channels and then indirectly change the potential. That's my opinion. Samantha Payne, thank you so much for joining us to talk to us about this very intriguing area of therapy. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Samantha Payne is a professor of biomedical sciences at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. You know, Seth, one of the reasons we're skeptical about what electric medicine promises is because of the fad that you can shed body fat with a zap of electricity. Are you familiar (laughs) with these claims? Well, I've seen the advertising in the magazines. Yes, you just strap on this device, whatever it is, around your waist and watch the poundage melt away. That's right, the belly fat burners. Did you know that electric belts promised this way back in the 19th century? Yeah, well, well, remember, in the 19th century, electricity was still somewhat magical, right? <laughs> Nobody knew quite how it worked, or at least not amongst the public. And consequently, any claim you made for it might be true. <laughs> and it might be true, the claims that we're hearing about the chip for the brain that the FDA recently approved. But of course, the first thing from the FDA's point of view is not that the uh, treatment is efficacious, but that it's at least safe. But on the subject of efficacy with regard to using electricity in the cure for cancer, uh, what we heard from Samantha Payne is that it can't, in fact, get malignant cells to flip back to being healthy ones. It's not that simple. Well, of course, and that's, you know, that's cancer's story over and over again, that it's not very simple. Sadly, it's not very simple. It's not like infectious diseases where you can take out bacteria and you, you've solved the problem. Coming up, an area of medicine where bioelectric therapy is showing great promise. This episode of our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, the Body Electric. heard how the field of bioelectricity may be limited in its applications, such as to cancer treatment, but one area where the research seems very encouraging is the use of electricity to alleviate pain and inflammation. I'm Kevin Tracy, the president of the Feinstein Institutes at Northwell Health, and I'm a neurosurgeon who's been fascinated by inflammation for 30 years. He says that many diseases are rooted in inflammation. Inflammation, for instance, can accelerate the growth of cancer and cause it to metastasize. Inflammation causes the pain and tissue damage that occurs in rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease. Inflammation is the reason that people became so sick after the COVID infections. So yes, inflammation is a, is a major challenge to the diseases that affect potentially two-thirds of the deaths on the planet Earth every year. Dr. Tracy is known for his study of the vagus nerve, a superhighway in the body extending from the base of our brain to our heart and digestive system. He describes how electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve can treat many diseases of inflammation, inspiring his contention that electricity could replace some of our medications. He begins with a case study. 
There's a uh, woman named Kelly Owens who has um, been writing about her illness for most of her adult life. And when she was a teenager, she she developed severe symptoms of Crohn's disease complicated by a severe form of arthritis. And this became disabling for her for, for more than a decade. She traveled from New York to Hawaii and back, getting medical care to the extent millions and millions of dollars and, and being put on some of the most powerful and dangerous medications that, that we have available today to treat inflammation. And, and these did not help her. She had sent me an email and I referred her to a clinical trial being done by a company called Setpoint Medical, which I co-founded to, to use vagus nerve stimulation to treat inflammation. So this is a, a small computer chip that is implanted in, in the neck. And this activates the vagus nerve to turn off inflammation based on ideas that my laboratory uh, found in the 1990s. And Kelly was one of the first tr- patients treated and she had, has had nothing short of a, of a, of a fantastic uh, improvement. And does Kelly still have the, the device implanted in her neck? Does that stay with her the way that, say, um, someone who has had a, a pacemaker implanted? Yes, the device that, that Kelly has implanted, I would call a Generation 1 device. It's very much like a cardiac pacemaker. It's implanted under the collarbone, and then a wire, a lead, is, is uh, channeled up uh, over the collarbone, up into the neck area where the vagus nerve is. Well, let's talk more about the vagus nerve then. Um, now, this is the nerve that originates at the back of the neck and connects the brain to the rest of the body, and it's like the motherboard of our nervous system. Can you describe how it connects not just the electrical impulses of our nervous system, but it also sounds like it's controlling our immune system? The vagus nerve originates in the bottom of your brain um, at about the level of your eardrum. And it, it, from there, it, it travels down through the neck and it touches all the organs in your body, pretty much. Now, what's really important to, to understand about the vagus nerve is that, that there's not one vagus nerve, there's two, there's one on each side. And inside of those two vagus nerves are 80,000 nerves. So you really have 160,000 vagus nerves. And I, I, I like to think of it as a transatlantic cable connecting New York and London carrying billions and billions of podcasts and, and movies and telephone calls and internet connections. These connections are racing back and forth from the body to the brain. 80% of the signals in these vagus nerves are informing the brain about what's happening in the body. And the other 20% of the signals are, are the brain reacting to the input to reset the uh, function of the organs so that the organs operate in an optimal way, which we call homeostasis or health or balance or equanimity. And some 25 years ago, my, my lab discovered that these, these very same signals in the vagus nerve also control the immune system and that these signals have the ability to turn off inflammation. I'm having a hard time resisting, speaking of impulses, saying that, so it sounds like what happens in the vagus nerve doesn't stay in the vagus nerve. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've resisted that expression for 25 years. Someday I'll say it, but not today. Yes, leave it to me to make that silly joke. Um, <laughs> okay, so when you were providing a, um, in Kelly's case, the electrical therapy that she received, 
it did more than provide a crude reset along the vagus nerve. It sounds as though you were able to direct the electricity to certain organs or areas of the body along those nerve fibers. So in bioelectronic medicine, the goal is to be as precise as possible in targeting rather than 80,000 fibers, targeting perhaps, you know, 100 or 200 or 20, whatever is necessary to target the molecular mechanism. And that, that goal can, can be accomplished through a number of different strategies. In the case of how the vagus nerve turns off inflammation, as it turns out, we estimate about 1,000 fibers are controlling how much inflammation is occurring in the spleen. And what's the good news about those 1,000 fibers is that they are exquisitely sensitive to electrical stimulation by bioelectronic devices. So what that means is we can put a cuff on one of the two vagus nerves, the left usually, and activate um, those fibers that turn off inflammation by applying a relatively low amount of current to the vagus nerve. So although technically the cuff around the nerve or the leads around the nerve may be stimulating, could theoretically stimulate 80,000 fibers, because we're only putting in a small amount of current, we're not seeing 80,000 fibers activated, but the fibers that turn off inflammation are activated. So we're not seeing significant side effects like slowing of heart rate or, or pain or off to quote unquote off target effects. This is what has me so interested in this. Just to follow up on how that works, um, you said that it, it turns off inflammation. Is it a binary system where you're turning it on or turning it off? I guess this is a way of asking why this works or how this works. Is there a way we can talk about that without getting too technical <laughs> at the cellular level? Well, we're still new in this. Um, these are really important questions and ideas that you're framing. The way I, I think about this uh, that has held up so far to 25 years of understanding, and I'm sure it could still be further refined or changed as we learn more, but this neural circuit controlling inflammation through the vagus nerve evolved over hundreds of millions of years. We've seen vagus nerve-like control of inflammation in roundworms and C. elegans, which are ancient animals, evolutionarily ancient and simple. We've seen it in all the mammals that have been studied, from mice to rats to pigs to humans. And so this is a highly conserved mechanism. Um, so that's, that's important as we think about this. The second thing that's extraordinarily important is when we activate the vagus nerve to turn off inflammation, it never turns it off to zero. It lowers the amount of inflammation. It doesn't immunosuppress. Now the drugs we use, whether it's steroids or biologics that target TNF, IL-1, and IL-6, these cytokine molecules, these drugs are dangerous because they cause immunosuppression. The drugs block 100% of the inflammation whenever they can, whereas the vagus nerve stimulation only suppresses it 50 to 80%. So we're not seeing any immunosuppression. And, and from clinical experience now with a quarter of a million patients, give or take, who've had vagus nerve stimulation for epilepsy or depression or other conditions. We're not seeing immunosuppression. We're not seeing black box warnings. So there's a lot still to learn, but there's a lot of reason to be optimistic at this point based on what we already know. 
Well, Kevin, I wonder if we could look at another way that electrical stimulation is being used to promote healing. And this is maybe tangential to your area of primary research, but significantly DARPA, among other groups, has given millions of dollars to researching uh, bioelectronic medicine around wound healing. And a lot of these grants have focused on so-called smart bandages. Can you describe how a smart bandage works? And do you see it as a promising option for using electricity to heal wounds? DARPA has been a sponsor of my research over the past 25 years. And, and, and without DARPA's early support, I'm not sure this entire Vegas nerve story would have been to the mature state it's at right now. I think the unofficial DARPA motto is something like, imagine the world in 30 years and let's give it to you in five. <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, my dear friend and former DARPA leader, Jeff Ling, used to instruct his managers and his staff with the guidance of, yes, it's crazy, but what if it's yes? Now, and, the, I, and I think that's where we are, frankly, with using bioelectronic medicine to treat wound healing. It's the early days, but I, I see a path based on deep scientific mechanistic understandings where one day we will be able to accelerate wound healing by using bioelectronic devices. And the reason I see this as possible is, is at least twofold. First, from what we know already, that it's possible to hack into nerves to control the, the nerve production of neurotransmitters. And we know that neurotransmitters can control the magnitude of the inflammatory response or the magnitude of inflammation. We, we should be able to take out the parts of inflammation that slow the healing and accelerate the parts of inflammation that help the healing. So that makes perfect sense to me. What I know not a lot less about, but see work going on and being described and published is the role that individual cells use to communicate by modulating their uh, electromagnetic fields that are either around or in the, inside the cells. Um, the best way I think for people to think about it in general and there's been a lot written on this, is the fact that you can take a tadpole or other um, newborn reptiles and, and in the laboratory and you can amputate a limb and then by manipulating the electromagnetic field around the, uh, the limb bud, you can control what kind of limb is regrown. And so it's clear that, that simply changing the electromagnetic field can change the response of stem cells and, and, the, and the healing process itself. And so this is, this is clearly been done. And in order to transfer that to healing of wounds or regrowing limbs in humans, which, which sounds crazy, but who knows, um, if we understood enough about stem cells and understood enough about the electromagnetic fields that control them, maybe someday in 50 years, we will be able to significantly modify damage in, in, uh, in adult humans. That this is, this is what would be called the DARPA hard problem, but what if it's yes? Well, we will keep our eye out for developments in this area. It just sounds so promising. Kevin Tracy, it is so nice to have you back on the program. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to speaking to you again. That's Kevin Tracy, a pioneer in the field of bioelectronic medicine, talking about the potential of electrical stimulation to treat disease. 
He's a neurosurgeon and president of the Feinstein Institutes at Northwell Health in New York. And that brings us to the big picture. And our question, what is the potential of bioelectric medicine to treat pain and cure disease? Yeah, well, I think the answer is we don't know the answer. <laughs> we don't know yet enough to be able to fully evaluate what the, what the possibilities are, but they certainly look promising because of the fact that, you know, the electric currents play a role in essentially all the functions of the body, including pain and disease and stuff like that. So if we can understand more, we can do more. It's like everything else in, well, medicine for sure and applied science. The more you know, the more you can do. And there's a possible parallel here. You know, we we decoded the genome and then the microbiome, and now we're trying to decode our electrome. But if we do compare it to the deciphering of the genome, you know, Seth, we had a lot of promises that once we decoded the genome, it would clear up the mysteries of human evolution and give us control over disease. But the operation of those genes proved more complicated than we thought. Yeah, well... uh... For me, that's a, that's a familiar problem. It's like when I finally developed enough reading ability or vocabulary to read Shakespeare, but that didn't mean that I understood it, right? There's a difference. And, you know, maybe Samantha Payne said it best when she said that we will continue to do experiments, and we will find that some of them will prove to be more hype, and they will join the long list of electric medicine going back to the 19th century that didn't work. And that's what it means to be skeptical around this new area of medicine. It's also what it means to do experimental science. Most of what you try doesn't work. But, of course, that doesn't stop you from doing it because you know there is an experiment that will work. This show would not be possible without the sparks of imagination from senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, Lauren Trottier, Rena Shulsky-David, and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates other bodies in the cosmos. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science that examines the potential of electricity to heal the body is called Skeptic Check, The Body Electric. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.